Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I'm happy that you are here today. This week's episode is part two of our Money in College Sports series. We're discussing the name, image, and likeness deals that allow college athletes to get paid. Just two years ago, they were prohibited from doing so, but today the stakes are high and they're getting higher. To make sense of this issue, I've invited on our guests, Mr. A.J. Vaynerchuk from Vayner Sports and Lane Higgins from the Wall Street Journal. Lane's going to join us in the back half of the episode, so I'm going to go ahead and introduce her now if you're okay with that. She's a former college athlete, having been a swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania. She is now a sports reporter for the Wall Street Journal, where she covers, among other things, college athletics. In this conversation, she and I discuss Title IX and its implications for the NIL deals and what responsibilities schools have for ensuring equal access for both men and women to these kinds of deals. We talk about how and why brands are structuring deals with athletes from non-revenue sports like track and field and uh, volleyball and swimming, in fact, and to what degree attractiveness and sex appeal drives followership on social media and thus the potential value of an NIL deal. By all means, stick around for that one, because even though I ask the question sincerely, I somehow managed to come across like a total creep. But let's start it off, folks, with A.J. Vaynerchuk. He was the co-founder of VaynerMedia and is now the co-founder of Vayner Sports. He's done a lot of these deals with top brands and the top athletes in the country, so he's got great insights into this space. We talk about what brands are looking for when they partner with college athletes, how big the deals have gotten. We'll dive into the specifics of the deals he's done with Dr. Pepper, and we'll go down the road and think about just what college sports are going to look like in the next five to ten years. He's got, uh, he's got better vision than almost any of us, and even he isn't quite sure, but I know you're going to want to hear what he has to say. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy these conversations with A.J. Vaynerchuk and Lane Higgins. A.J. Vaynerchuk, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks for having me. A.J., who were your favorite athletes when you were a kid? Oh, that's a great question. I'll go sport by sport. I'll try to go quick. Uh, <laughs> so on the football side, I grew up a diehard Jet fan. So guys like uh, Curtis Martin, Wayne Corbett, Keyshawn Johnson, John Abraham are probably the ones that come to mind. Um, Chad Pennington was big for me for a little while, especially before the injury. Basketball, I grew up a Knicks fan. That was tough sledding. I'm 35 for context. So like my Ewing years were on his downswing. <laughs> right. Um, I really like Latrell Sprewell was a big one for me. They had that run in the late nineties uh, where they made the finals. So like Alan Houston, Latrell Sprewell, that's probably the basketball side. Baseball. I never had an allegiance. Um, I was never a Yankees or Mets fan. So that one kind of was more player based. I loved playing fantasy baseball. I think Ken Griffey Jr. was kind of clearly my favorite in that regard. And then um, those were really the three sports I cared about the most. I wasn't a big hockey guy growing up. I wasn't a big, I mean, Tiger was the real deal, but I wasn't, I'm a much bigger fan of golf now than I was growing up. So yeah, I would say from whittling it down, it's probably like Latrell Sprewell, Keyshawn Johnson, Ken Griffey Jr. is probably like my prime sports icons growing up. How does that passion for sports translate into what you're trying to build at Vayner Sports? It, it's the entirety of it. You know, I was really lucky and fortunate in a lot of ways when I started my career back in 09. One, I had an older brother who was 11 years older that was already successful in the business world. So it was one of those situations where he and I are airtight. You know, he's my best friend. He's my business partner. He's my mentor. And so we always knew when I was graduating school that we wanted to start a business together. and 
I was really fortunate in the sense that unlike most 22 year olds, I didn't have college debt. And I had an older brother that was willing to finance the starting of a company together. And so very privileged and lucky in that regard. And then to answer your question, you know, I spent my 20s building up that company with Gary and I could have just put my feet up and coasted to an extremely, extremely comfortable lifestyle. You know, we built the largest independent ad agency in the world. That's VaynerMedia. Yes. So we built VaynerMedia together. He, since my departure, has kind of expanded it into a more multifaceted holding company um, called VaynerX. You know, that that company's 2,000 employees, hundreds of clients, international. I could have very much sat in a comfortable role as the chief operating officer and collected a massive paycheck, but I wanted to chase my passion. And so that's why I say that growing up, being that diehard of a sports fan, you know, I was the kid that played Madden, but when I played Madden, I was playing franchise mode, not the actual like exhibition game. I was drafting and free agency. And I was really always interested in the convergence of business and sports because I grew up in an entrepreneurial household. So I referenced my brother and his success my father, before that, started up a business in the wine and liquor industry, and then my brother joined him and really grew that together You know, in the early 2000s. And so dinner time conversation was business, business, business. Everything else for me was sports, 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 and you know, really Vayner Sports was the convergence of those two things. So yeah, I made the hard decision to leave the company that I started, took a little bit of time off, and then landed on the idea of athlete representation. And what do you guys do there? How's, how's Vayner Sports different than a traditional sports management agency? Yeah, so we do two things primarily. We first and foremost handle the player contracts, whether that's with the team or the league. And when I say that, I mean, you know, we represent the individual athletes and in their negotiations with the Jets, Giants, Niners, Seahawks, whoever. Sure. When I say league, uh, we represent a lot of MMA fighters. So whether that's UFC, Bellator, PFL, one championship, those are not team-based negotiations. Those are league-based negotiations. So we do that. And then we also represent baseball players. Same thing with the Yankees, you know, the Guardians, whoever. And then um, we also provide uh, marketing and branding and PR services for athletes off the field. So, you know, the traditional endorsement deals and, and everything around that area. Um, the one thing that we don't do is we don't do financial advice. Um, we are not CPAs. We don't handle accounting taxes or financial investments or anything like that. And then to answer your question in terms of how we're different, I think a few ways. One major difference, frankly, is that we have a situation where we offer everything that everybody else does. And my co-CEO, Greg Gensky, is your traditional sports agent with billions of dollars of contracts negotiated on the baseball side. And he knows the business up and down, inside and out. But then me... And then as the co-CEO and then Gary, my brother, as the chairman, we're two outsiders, right? We never spent a single moment learning or working in the athlete representation industry before starting Vayner Sports. And I actually think that's an advantage. It's the same advantage we had when we started the ad agency, you know, fresh set of eyes, fresh perspective. And I think the Vaynerchuk DNA and culture that we inject into our business and, and with our clients is disruption, innovation, challenging the status quo. I think a really good example that encapsulates that is that back in April, about six months ago, we actually started an NFT project called Vayner Sports Pass, which we did as basically a layer to our sports agency. And the amount of opportunity that we've created for our athletes to participate in the NFT project, you're not finding that anywhere else. And so I think that's a right. really good example of disruption, innovation, and our business acumen and our network outside of the confines of sports. 
Well, speaking of innovation and new areas of expertise that you, that people have to learn about, um, you know, we're here to talk about the name, image, and likeness deals happening among college athletes. And, you know, 18 yep. months ago, agents weren't even allowed to talk to college athletes. Now, you know, uh, just as of 15 months ago, they're cutting multi-million dollar deals on behalf of these uh, young adults, really. So what has it been like to go through this massive shift in 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 the structure and the, and the logistics of, yeah. of, of going in there and establishing this whole new marketplace. What's it been like? Honestly, for, for me and us, it's been great. It's one of those things that when we started Vayner sports about six years ago, the concept of name, image, and likeness was circled in pen multiple times <laughs> because we, we have this really inherent advantage. Like I talked about before, right? The fact that I'm the co-founder and my brother's still the current CEO of a massive ad agency that's working with hundreds of brands all over the world. We just have direct access and links to opportunities for these young adults, men and women in the collegiate space. And it's it's really an opportunity for us. I think when you look at the landscape objectively of us as a sports agency, we would fall into the category of a challenger brand, right? We're doing really well. We're six years in. We have 150 or so athletes and 40 employees. Like, But you're not CAA or IMG. Exactly. Exactly. So we were, we're still behind in some regards, I guess the best category being, I guess, revenue of the incumbent, the brands that have been around for decades and decades and decades. And so whenever there's a massive shift in the marketplace in any industry, it typically benefits the challenger brand and typically the incumbent, the people that are sitting comfortably at the top don't like change because change means potential vulnerability. Now, they could have the ability to adapt and, and do well in the in the circumstance. But honestly, when you're at the tippy top, no change is the best. And so for us, knowing that we had the momentum that we had and the fact that we had a real competitive advantage, given my background and, and our link to, you know, VaynerX, um, it's been an exciting endeavor. I think, you know, a lot of larger agencies took a very conservative approach. Because there just was some gray area about like what's okay, what's not okay. They didn't want to, I think they didn't want to piss off the wrong people. Whereas for us, it's in our wheelhouse. We have momentum. It's a, you know, it's an opportunity for a challenger brand. We went all in on it and um, we've been thriving. It's been good. So an obvious question here is, is any of this a conflict of interest? I think that's a really fair question. I think the thing that we run into is, for example, if we do a campaign with a brand like Bojangles, Bojangles is a brand that is a longstanding VaynerX um, client. My brother Gary is on the board of Bojangles. <laughs> really? And That's so, great. Yeah, yeah, he's on the board. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, he joined the board maybe like a year and a half, two years ago, maybe three now. It was, yeah, it was probably like a year or so before NIL came. And so when it comes to that, I think the key, like, I don't know if it's necessarily a conflict of interest, but it's something that needs to be disclosed, right? And so what and on both sides we yeah. need to disclose it to the athletes that we represent that hey you should know that Gary's on the board and VaynerX you know they're a client um and then on the flip side with Bojangles you know we did a campaign with them for their new chicken sandwich last year and i think it was like 60 athletes maybe in the southeast and when we were working with them we disclosed to them saying hey here are the 60 athletes we think you should work with and just please note there's a star next to these seven names because they're actually Vayner Sports clients. And so right. um, conflict, I don't think so. But it, whatever the right word would be for like a cousin of conflict of interest, I do think it is that. 
And it requires us just being fully transparent, disclosing to both parties. Now, on the other hand, the, the benefit is if you have the trust of the people on the other side of the table, you can move really quickly, right? So Correct. Gary can say to the CMO or CEO of Bojangles, hey, look, this is a great opportunity and we need them to take advantage of it. We, we don't have time to go through cycles of planning and stuff. That's right. You got you to move now, right? Well, so to that point, I'll give you a great insight into that. Um, so Dr. Pepper. Yeah. Dr. Pepper has done um, two campaigns now. Last year with the Clemson quarterback, DJ Uyangole, and then this year with the Alabama quarterback, Bryce Young. And in our work with Dr. Pepper, because we do work with brands on that, on the NIL side as well. And so we were doing work with Dr. Pepper. And last year when we said, hey, we think this is what you should do. And they agreed in terms of inserting a collegiate athlete into their national college football campaign. We said, listen, here's a list of the top five Heisman candidates. And all of them would be a good fit for your commercial. But you should know that um, we actually represent the number two candidate, DJ Uyangale. And I think in their minds, I can't speak for them, but I think in their minds, their mindset was, well, listen, one-stop shop. The same company that is helping us bring this to life can be the same company that provides the talent that can be appealing. Now, this year, they, they utilize Bryce Young. We don't represent Bryce Young. And so it's not the be-all, end-all. Um, obviously there's a certain threshold of the type of talent that they wanted in the commercial. But if I had to guess, I think it was probably a benefit in terms of just making things smooth and make things move quickly in the sense that the same company that was helping them with the strategy also happened to represent the number two candidate for the Heisman at a big school like Clemson. Yeah. Now, obviously there's some synergies here. If you're going to sign somebody in college, the hope is that they're going to stay with you throughout their pro career, right? Yeah, I think that's the hope. You know, there's a lot of rules and regulations. We cannot sign them for pro representation in terms of player contract while they're in college. I think if you look at the industry and how everybody's participated, us included, I think the idea is that you want to work with talented players that you think you could do good work for. And then obviously if things go well in college, you hope that you have the best chance to land them for the pro side. Um, we had a couple of those instances last year where Desmond Ritter, the quarterback at the University of Cincinnati, who since is now an Atlantic Falcon, we represented him for college. He then decided to go with us for the pros. And then the same thing with David Bell, a wide receiver out of Purdue, who went, um, coincidentally, both went third round, but David went to Cleveland. Um, but that wasn't consistent across the board. You saw players some of the top players in the NFL draft that were represented by one agency while they're in college. And they actually made a switch um, when they went professional. So it's not guaranteed um, legally. It cannot be contractually obligated in any way. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it's a great thing for the players and, you know, it goes back to what you were saying at the very beginning when we segue to this part of the conversation previously, you could talk to players. So I'll clarify that point. We could talk to collegiate players but that's all we could do. We couldn't right. yeah. buy, we couldn't buy them a cup of coffee. If you bought, if you went to Dunkin' Donuts with a first round recruit and you bought them a donut and a cup of coffee for two bucks, that's an NCAA infraction. And so what that created, and that, that created a system where like the coaching staffs at these universities and compliance really were anti-agent for the most part. And I don't blame them. An agent couldn't do anything to help. The only thing an agent could do prior to NIL was create an infraction and a violation and a headache for the coaching staff at the university. Whereas now we actually have great relationships with compliance and we have coaches actually reaching out to us because now a lot of kids that are of the highest recruiting level 
are wondering what is the ability for them to monetize in a name, image, and likeness space if they attend your university, right? And so um, it's created a huge shift. And the reason why I think it's really benefited the player is because if you're a player and you have aspirations of going professional in the NFL or any sport, now you have the ability to actually work with an agency and you can actually see how they work. You can see if they're going to do what they say. You can see if you feel like you can trust them. And if you have an experience where you're working with them while you're in college and you don't feel that way, um, it makes it easier for you to make a better decision as you evaluate other agencies. And then on the flip side, I think for Des and David, you know, I like to think that we made the decision on them fairly easy because when they signed with us for NIL, when it comes to the marketing component, I think we did everything that we said we would do. I think they got to see the professional manner in which we were able to operate. I think they got to see um, our communication ability and how much we made them a priority. And that didn't exist before NIL. A lot of it was kind of you had to blindly trust that the, the agency on the other side, frankly, salespeople, really, at the end of the day, in that facet, you got you had to find out once you went pro if they were really what you know were about what they said they were. What are brands looking for in terms of guidance into this new uh, wild west of the NIL? I think it's shifting. I think the guidance early on was brands were scared. Brands were like, <laughs> right. this just feels so foreign. And how do we know that these kids are going to represent our brand well? And yeah. And, like, the, and, the, and the laws are different in every state. Yeah, correct. And some schools will let us use their logos. Some won't. Right. The policies evolve, right? I give Clemson a lot of credit. Um, I have a very good relationship with the Clemson Compliance Department. Um, Amanda over there does a great job, and the rest of her team that I'm sure supports her. And it was it was very clear. They were very transparent, and a lot of you know Notre Dame's been great. All the schools, honestly, we've been lucky. We've dealt with like a, you know ten schools or so, and everybody's been really good to us. Um, I think part of that is because we're actually like a professional offering, whereas. Sometimes these schools have to deal with like family members or random neighbors. And so like, I think they appreciate that we understand laws and rules and want to abide by them. But the landscape has evolved, right? Like when we first started working with Clemson, for example, um, they were great with the Dr. Pepper commercial for DJ. But, you know, we had to work with them on how, what could we do around the uniform, right? We couldn't use the, we couldn't use the paw, right? And we couldn't use certain things, but we were able to use some aspects in terms of like the orange, right? And it's number five. And then now, you know, they actually went from, hey, you can't do any of this to now their policy is you're able to submit a request and we'll review the request and we'll see who the player is and who the brand is. And in certain instances, maybe we will let you use the paw, right? And so that's been, it's been an ever evolving landscape, which has made it tricky. But I think where the brands are now is they're not scared anymore because there's been so much done in the space in these 15 months that there's a lot of precedent and case studies and you know things to avoid and things to do. Um, honestly, now it's just like any other campaign. It's it's really quickly, I would say in 15 months, gone from this is scary, what can we do, what can't we do, to just like any other campaign, let's understand who our target demographics are, let's get to our geographies that we care about, let's find the athletes that fit our brand aesthetic and our brand message. Let's look at how good is their social media following. You know, if they make a post, will it actually get seen by a lot of people and the people that we want to see it? So it's really been an evolving landscape and, and it's getting to the point where it's getting close to just being like anything else. Is it different than doing a pro a deal with a pro athlete? Like are there nuances? 
it's getting closer and closer. It, it was a lot of nuances in the beginning, but it's just getting less and less complicated as more and more is happening. What about the different stakeholders in these deals? There's the schools, there's the conferences, yep. there's the NCAA. Do you have, I mean, then there's the networks. I mean, Dr. Pepper deals with ESPN, the college football playoff uh, system, yep. the SEC. Are you always, I mean, you must have a Rolodex that has exploded over the last 15 months with all these people and these different stakeholders. Yeah, no, you crystallized it in a good way. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but the NIL has expanded the Rolodex in that capacity. And it's, um, yeah, there, there's a few dynamics. It's starting to show up more and more. Um, frankly, we don't get too involved with like the conference or NCAA aspect. You know, at the end of the day, our offering to the brands is strategy. And then our offering to the talent is these endorsement opportunities. And then when it comes to any large scale activations, it's typically required of either the school or the brand to deal with or the network to deal with, um, you know, the conferences or the right. media rights deals or, and then the NCAA, you know, I don't want to jinx myself, but, um, I haven't had, yeah, I think the only way I'd have to deal with the NCAA is if we did something wrong and I don't plan on doing anything wrong. So I hope not to deal <laughs> with them. That's my, that's my hope is that I don't have to deal with them. Besides your team that's doing it right and, and trying new things and being brave, who, what, what brands do you see out there and go, oh, those guys are thinking about it in the right way? That's a great question. There were some good jobs done early, early. So like we were one of the companies and we had some brands that were ready to go right on July 1. So yeah, one example uh, that I thought was really great early on was the Cavender Twins, two women's basketball players, and Boost Mobile. They actually had a social media campaign launch at 12.01 midnight <laughs> on July 1st. So they were like fully ready to roll, like legal, the schools, the brand. I give them a lot of credit you know, in a world where a lot of brands were hesitant and a lot of just agents or schools or lawyers were scared. They were like, the second we can activate, we are activating. And so I give them credit. They did a really nice job. And I think the Cabinet Twins in general, I've seen them doing a lot of things um, and they've been really active in the space. So kudos to them and their team. Other brands that have done it right. This is a really small thing, but in general, I think regional is a really good opportunity for NIL. That's where I think a lot of the opportunity is because yeah, DJ was in a national commercial. Bryce is now in a national commercial. But you're talking about the 1% of the 1% of the 1% are those things for like national brands. But I think there's really been some cool activations around like the local scene. So I've seen a lot of car dealerships be very aggressive with the local, you know, college star and do a lot of good stuff. And there's been some really high quality content in that regard. I think that I give kudos to like the trading card companies. They've been aggressive. You look at things like, um, like fanatics with the jerseys. We're starting to see some jerseys rolling out. I think we represent a Bama player, Kool-Aid McKinstry. And I think Alabama just rolled out a team store in partnership with fanatics to be selling Bryce Young and Kool-Aid McKinstry jerseys. So I think that's awesome. There was a great campaign. Uh, so I like to think that Kool-Aid, our client has the best name in college football. And we did a great deal with the Kool-Aid brand, the drink, which was sick. That was a great example of just, um, Listen, I'm a big believer that luck plays some role in success. We were recruiting Kool-Aid and the brand Kool-Aid was a VaynerX client. And so that was another example where I don't think it's a conflict of interest, but disclosures are important. But it was a situation where we went to the brand. We said, hey, we're recruiting this kid. We went to the kid. We say, hey, we actually represent this brand. We should try to find a way to make something happen. Yeah. And so that was a lot of fun. And we did some really cool content and activations around that. And 
it was early in the NIL landscape. I think we got that deal done in July within 30 days of NIL going live. And so ton of press, ton of media, ton of buzz. So that was really fun. Yeah. And then the last thing I'll say to give flowers to somebody that's not us is uh, I can't remember the kid's last name, but there's actually a college football player whose first name is the coldest. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He did a ad with like an air conditioning company locally. And that's yeah. like, how, you can't do better than that. So that was really cool to see. And I think regional opportunities are great. One of the things that's sort of unanticipated consequences or opportunities for brands like Nike to sign Bronny James, yeah. LeBron's yep. son, as a high school senior, right? You didn't think about this as being the first implication, but they're like, that's oh, right. look, we can sign this kid now. I mean, yeah. what do you think about that deal? I, I think it's awesome. Also, it was pretty cool. If I saw correctly, I believe Bronny signed at the same age as LeBron when LeBron signed with 18. Nike. So like, yeah. So like really cool for that narrative, and that story to happen. I think it's smart. Nike signed, uh, I think, a handful of athletes, which is cool. And then on the high school side, I think that landscape's really, really interesting right now because it's not nationally consistent. So you've got kids like in California, for example, that are monetizing their name, image, and likeness. And then you've got their peers in states like Florida or Georgia that don't allow it. And so I think that's a really interesting dichotomy. I anticipate it becoming more consistent nationally. I, 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 if I had to guess, I think the governments like Florida and Georgia eventually allow the high schoolers to do it. Without um, question. Yeah, I think it has to happen, right? Because if it doesn't happen, I think you run the risk of these kids leaving the state. And I don't think the states want that. And I don't think the mm -hmm. state universities want that. If there's one thing state legislators can agree upon, it's that football is a good thing in the states of Texas, Alabama, Florida, and Georgia. That's my hypothesis as well, but, <laughs> but uh, time will tell. All right. Let's take some big, uh, big picture questions to wrap us up here. We're in year yeah. two. We're in year two of NIL. What's got to be worked out here? What are the biggest issues that need to kind of come together to make this thing kind of sing and be fair for everybody? So I think uniformity, we just touched on it, right? I think- yep. um, I think right now it's working pretty well at the college level because all 50 are on the same page. There were some kinks and there were some states that were waiting and state legislators were figuring it out, but that's all kind of, I think that ship has sailed. So I think at the college level, it's working pretty well. I think that it's interesting to see how these collectives have formed. Yeah. Uh, and so collect, I don't know, I'll spend a second, but collectives are basically these groups of people that are not affiliated with a particular school or university that are creating opportunities for these unaffiliated schools and universities and their athletes. So we've been dealing with them. It's inconsistent as far as like, we've probably worked with 10 collectives and there's just varying levels, ways of working and varying levels of money that may be available to the athletes. So I think that needs to be worked out and that'll be interesting. I'm curious to see, like, I think I saw something that the NCAA had a job listing a few weeks ago for essentially somebody to monitor and implement rules and regulations around NIL. Um, you know, the NCAA kind of put their hands up and said, hey, the states are going to take care of it. But now I think they're starting to put together their structure and their formula around, you know, um, enforcing the rules around it. So I think that's got to happen and that's going to happen. And hopefully it's done in a smooth and normal manner. And then I think, I do think that for NIL to be, good for everybody. Um, I do think that having all 50 states allow the high schoolers to partake as well um, will be helpful. So I'm looking forward to seeing the states that don't allow it um, changing course because I think it's going to be needed to keep things uniform and fair. And lastly, the multi-billion dollar question, what does college sports look like in five or 10 years? 
Ooh, that's a great question. I'm not going to lie to you. You know, every question you've asked me, I felt like I had a good answer. I don't have a great answer to that. Um, I'm fascinated to see how the NCAA decides to inject itself if it does. I think that's crucial. Um, I actually think that NIL will actually create more parity than people believe. Um, it's going to take time. And I know Bama and some of these other schools are still going to be at the top of the recruiting list. But something that I think is interesting that you've seen in a few places that I think will become more prevalent is the idea of a kid that's a five-star, whether this is football, basketball, or baseball, or any of the other collegiate sports, that in before NIL might have went down the route of going to a traditional powerhouse and waiting their turn. So if you're, you know, talk about Bama because we talk a lot about Bama, I think that, you know, you've seen it where uh, kids are one and done, where they sit on the bench for two years, then they become a starter their junior year. They're unbelievably talented. They thrive at Bama. They go pro their first round pick, right? And that's still going to happen. But I do think that you'll see a little bit more of, I'm a five-star, and if I play, as a freshman at a great school, maybe not the best school like Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, but if I still play at a very high-level D1 school and I'm starting right away, it'll be more fun because I'm playing. I'll get more experience, which should prepare me more for the NFL, and I'll be probably be able to monetize in a way that I wouldn't be able to elsewhere. And I think you can look at like Quinn Ewers, for example, the Texas quarterback. You know, He went to Ohio State, and I don't know how it all went down, but once it kind of became clear that, you know, CJ was really successful last year as his quarterback at Ohio state and he wasn't draft eligible, I have no idea, but I have to imagine maybe a role in Quinn leaving and going back to the state of Texas where he's from and becoming the starter at the university of Texas was the fact that he could play, show off his talents and monetize more. So Um, again, that's an assumption, but it seems like that would make sense to me given the landscape. Yeah. Um, well, it's an exciting time and uh, it's it's going to be really fun to watch and see what happens in this space because it's still the Wild West out there and it's changing really, really fast. And I appreciate you taking the time to walk us through some of it because everybody's perspective helps us understand the uh, the overall issue better. No, listen, Paul, I appreciate you having me on. This was fun to talk about and it's uh, it's an evolving landscape. So I'm a student of it just as much as anybody else that's observing it from the outside. Hey, Jay, where can our listeners find out more about you and Vayner Sports? Yeah, for me, my primary methods of just seeing what I'm up to is on Twitter and Instagram. Um, it's simple. It's just three letters, AJV. Um, on both those platforms, I was able to secure some pretty good handles back in the day. And then um, similarly, you know, VaynerSports.com, VaynerSports on Twitter and Instagram. Those are going to be the best places. Sounds good. We'll put links to those awesome. in the show notes. Thanks for your time, appreciate man. That. Of course. Appreciate you. Lane Higgins, welcome to Crazy Money. Thanks so much for having me, Paul. I'm happy to be here. Lane, we're talking today about, as you know, about name, image, and likeness and and its real practical effects in college athletics. Let's start by talking a little bit about Title IX. Can you give us a little bit of background on what Title IX is and how it affects college athletic departments today? Title IX is a federal statute that was passed in the 70s that stipulates, um, as part of it, that all of the spending that happens in an educational or government-funded institution must be proportional to the genders represented. So therefore, if it's 50-50 men and women, you've got to spend the same amount on men's activities and women's activities. And how that specifically translates to athletic departments is that because so many universities are public and receive funding from their states and from the federal government, they are 
you know, they have to follow Title IX as well. And that is something that you often see in the context of athletic departments as a school sponsoring far more women's sports than men's sports, because you have to have roughly the same amount of athletes and opportunities and scholarships. And the reason why you end up having more women's sports is that a football team has 85 scholarships. You know, the days of having maybe 150 people on the roster are gone, but there's still often rosters of 120. And there's no comparable women's sport that has that large of a team. So in order to compensate for having so many men's players on the field for football, which is a huge you know, revenue driver for these schools, so they're not willing to really make these smaller rosters like in the NFL that are 53, you end up having, you know, maybe a women's crew team or women's lacrosse or track and field that's only in one gender and not the other. How does this manifest in terms of uh, the way athletic departments kind of structure themselves? That is, if you've got far more women's sports teams, does that mean it requires more administration than if you have a smaller number of, of, of men's sports teams? Or is because football is so so big and such a huge revenue generator. You've got just as many administrators working on that as well. Yeah. So not necessarily, because if you remember uh, Billy Napier, when he was hired at Florida, made this promise to beef up the football staff. And I believe that the support staff around the football team is actually larger than the football roster. It's like 140 people to 115. <laughs> so that speaks to right. the amount of resources that, you know, universities put into the men's teams. And, you know, yes, you might have, you know, if you have three women's teams, they might share an academic advisor because it's just less athletes. For instance, golf has, you know, maybe 10 people on the roster. You don't necessarily need someone to only focus on that team. So that's part of it. Um, in theory, you're supposed to be dedicating equal resources to all of it. In practice, there, it's not really policed and it's not, it doesn't really always happen like that. So it's hard to say that definitively every athletic department is giving equal resources and marketing dollars and everything to both genders. But, you know, based on the letter of the law, they are supposed to. Okay, up till summer of 2021, there were no out there's no official outside money coming in to the to the student athlete, right? <laughs> and so, um, you know, the, the university didn't have to worry about, you know, what their players were being paid from outside folks. But starting in July of 2021, all of a sudden you have the ability for individual athletes to be paid either by brands or by collectives of alumni or boosters, et cetera. What complications does this bring to the table for the university? Well, there's kind of two different thorny aspects of this. One is that the laws around NIL, so name, image, and likeness, they vary so widely by state and by school even in terms of how much a school can have involvement in helping these athletes strike the deals. Because in some states, that's not allowed. In others, you know, the athletic director can chalk it up with a booster and they can decide to sponsor the quarterback. So because there's no uniformity around that, it's unclear if the athletic department is the one that's initiating these deals. And if they're not initiating them, it's unclear then if they are subject to the same rules that the rest of the athletic department has to follow, like Title IX. And then another you know, sort of thorny avenue of this is collectives, which are these third-party entities that operate you know, outside the NCAA, outside of athletic departments. It's usually a bunch of, you know, very passionate fans or marketing folks and uh, boosters that get together and they're pooling money either, you know, via subscription model or for just by lump sum donations. And that goes towards striking NIL deals with the players. So that could either be signing autographs and doing appearances at events and like having a dinner if you pay a certain amount 
um, if you're, you know, a booster, or it could be um, something like I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of the schools are now doing more of a charitable model for the collectives where, you know, maybe a charity can't pay to have an endorsement person in an advertisement, but the collective will pay the athlete to endorse this charity in a TV spot. So it's, it's structured as a win win in that sense. But again, because these are third party entities, they're not subject to really any rules. And there is, in theory, the NCAA, when it, you know, on July 1, 2021, when the NCAA lifted this ban on college athlete signing endorsements, it was a very, you know, broad language in the wording there. And it was kind of like, well, do whatever you want. Like it's free for all now. Good luck. And they said, yeah, it was just, it has to be a quid pro quo. There has to be some exchange of goods or services and it can't be an inducement for pay for play, which, you know, is really hard to prove. And also the NCAA has not exactly, gone out there and asserted itself in trying to investigate some of these things. And it said that, you know, it has had some queries into certain places, like there was a deal at BYU, there was a deal at Miami that the NCAA, you know, was on a fact-finding mission for, but there's been no penalties and no consequence. And separately, as the NCAA, this is probably getting a little bit away from your initial question, but that's okay. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, college sports is such an interconnected mess that it's a you can't open one box without opening, you know, 10 others. But in any case, as the NCAA is going through this transformational process, it is rethinking its um, enforcement arm. And currently there's this thing called the IARP, the Independent Action Review something rather, I forget what the P is. But that's usually the thing that comes and says we're vacating wins, like you are not eligible for a postseason game, things like that. Well, they just came out with a recommendation that says we don't want to punish any of the current athletes because it's not technically their fault if the administrators have you know lost institutional control and gotten them into trouble. So it basically means there's not going to be any postseason bans or you're not going to be missing any games or have a scholarship vacated. So because of that, it's like they are trying to enforce something and taking away the, what little teeth they have to do it. So it's just kind of opening this Pandora's box for a lot more potential bad behavior to be happening because no one is really watching. And it's like, okay, if all of a sudden you take away the chaperones at, you know, the high school dance, you're going to get someone that's spiking the punch. Like there's going to be something that maybe goes wrong. <laughs> so that's kind of what's happening here. Sorry, schools on some level would actually prefer to not have any involvement because if they have no involvement technically, then they also have no responsibility to enforce equity in the way that they're policing men's sports versus women's sports. Is that, is that a plausible argument? Yes and no. I mean, I think there are some schools that would rather have a hand in it just because, you know, the collective space and the booster money that's being thrown at it is so chaotic. And I think they want to help their athletes mm -hmm. get deals. And a lot of these athletes are actually not even engaging in NIL because it's confusing and they don't want to get into trouble. And, you know, it's not that they're unwilling, but they just don't want it to be the shining example that, you know, gets slapped with NCAA sanctions. So you have a lot of athletes that maybe would benefit from someone in compliance, walking them through the rules, being able to help connect them with, you know, a potential sponsor. But that's a missed opportunity because the schools can't do that. And a lot more of the education then burden falls on the athletes. And, you know, yes, there might be more work for schools if they have to say, if we are facilitating these deals, you know, 50% of them have to be for women athletes and 50% have to be for men. But because they're not, like, 
none of that's really happening. So let's talk about what's happening in in the world of NIL. You've seen lots of high profile deals, multi-million dollar deals done for, of course, there's no inducement here. There's no pay for play, but (laughs) they just happen to have eight or $9 million worth of deals supposedly in line for like Miami's quarterback and Tennessee's Mm -hmm. quarterback. Let's talk about some of the women that are signing big deals. Um, From a brand perspective, Bumble signed 50 women in honor of Title IX's 50th anniversary. Adidas mm-hmm. signed 15 women from sports, from sports including soccer, softball, volleyball, track and field, tennis, and gymnastics. Degree deodorants, breaking limits campaign, signed a bunch of, uh, uh, a bunch of women athletes. Um, so what are they looking for here? If, if they're not the quarterback, what are the brands looking for in these partnerships? Well, I think a big thing that is sometimes lost in the marketing space when it comes to college athletics is it doesn't necessarily matter how good you are in the field. Because if you have, if you're really funny and you showcase that personality on social media and you have a lot of followers that, you know, not only are a large number of followers, but engaged followers and commenting and liking your posts, that's actually a lot more attractive to a brand that's going to be using an influencer model um, than it is if you are, you know, the star quarterback and, you maybe have a lot of followers, but you post once during the season. Because that's one thing is a lot of coaches in mm. certain sports have social media bans for their athletes. So they're blacked out during the season and not posting, which makes it very hard to you know, be a social media influencer in any sort of way. So I think that's one thing you're looking for. Um, obviously, you want someone that's reputable um, and is going to be following the rules and is a good upstanding citizen. But, you know, you look at someone like Paige Beckers, who's, you know, obviously at UConn, she has unfortunately had a lot of injuries that have sidelined her in the last few years, but she's making over a million dollars in her NIL deals because she has one of the largest followings of not just any woman college basketball player, but any college basketball player. I forget what it is now, but, you know, last year before she had her tournament run again, it was somewhere over 600,000. So it's, that's a huge base that none of her peers have. And that's what's attractive to these uh, brands in some way. You know, some of the larger NIL deals, which are influencer deals really are with are with very, let's say it like it is very attractive women who who showcase their physicality in social media. Um, from LSU, Olivia Dunn, the, the gymnast, and the Cavender twins who were at, I believe, Fresno State, and then transferred to Miami University. Um, they're very, you know, they're, they're out there, they're posting in, in um, uh, limited amounts of clothing, let's say they're certainly showcasing their sexuality. Does it, does it worry you? Does it concern you that some female athletes are leading with that, as opposed to their athletic prowess? Absolutely not. I mean, it's, it's their right, it's their prerogative to, you know, market themselves however they want. And, you know, yes, a lot of the athletes that have garnered a lot of the deals are objectively, you know, pretty people, but it's not like the Cavenders are out there constantly posting bikini pictures. Like they got famous because of their ball handling skills on TikTok. And same with Olivia Dunn. It's, you know, you can't hold it against her that she competes in a sport that is so based on aesthetics where you're wearing leotards, you know, (laughs) like I was a swimmer in college. I just think the question is worth raising. I'm not saying, I mean, it is the world we live in and women resonate more on social media than, yeah, than I mean, do men. Maybe from a, it makes know, certain people uncomfortable, but I don't see how it's different to have an athlete, you know, that's in a bikini or a sports bra showing off their, you know, talents than it is to see a guy who's, you know, at two days in summer practice shirtless. Like there's just still this weird taboo that women have to have this sort of innocent image and that they can't be using that. And it has to be their skills. And like, since when have men been always doing that? Like they get by on their looks too. So I think that it's something that people just need to realize is going to happen because 
it's not like these are underage kids. They're adults. They can make their own decisions. And if that's how they want to market themselves, you know, that's their choice. I want to see that 350-pound O-lineman after two-a-days in Austin, Texas, post that sweaty belly photo. And I want that guy to be objectified. I mean, it's like the Eagles O-line and ESPN's body issue. I mean, hey, I feel like that (laughs) happened with Zion Williamson a little bit where there was pictures of him running on the beach shirtless at that Maui Invitational. And literally a headline on ESPN was, is Zion fat? So it happens. (laughs) Not that it's good, but you know, it can go both ways. Yeah. Okay. You swam uh, at Mm -hmm. UPenn. What might an Ivy League Olympic sport athlete expect from name, image, and likeness? Yeah. I mean, I think the most realistic type of deal that I could have done, both with my relative and by that I mean extreme lack of athleticism on a like compared to the team you know I was a walk-on I was not necessarily a bench warmer I traveled to meets but not championships and you know I, I did my part I was on the team all four years but it's not like I was the star by any stretch of that and because of that the thing that was marketable about me was not my presence on the national stage is that I got to the point I did. So I think that I probably could have gone home in the summers and said, hey, I will teach private lessons and do a swim camp and be able to say, you know, it's taught by Ivy League swimmer Lane Higgins. And then you can potentially advertise that aspect of your identity to potential parents. And, you know, in the past, you could say, oh, I'm Division One NCAA. And, you know, maybe you'd be able to skirt it and just say, I achieved at a high level, blah, blah, blah. But that's a very easy way to get something like that done. And, you know, I personally, I, I was not this kind of person, but there are plenty that have public social media profiles in college. And it's micro-influencing deals are actually a great option. Like there was a pizza place on campus called Allegro's that I lived next door to. And we were there way too often. And it would have been awesome if we could have had a, you know, a deal to promote them. You know, not that they needed promoting. They were doing quite fine. But, you know, there could be little things like that. Sure. Or for instance, our swim coach always took all of the recruits to this cheesesteak place on campus because it's in Philadelphia. And I'm sure they would have loved to have some sort of deal with swimmers promoting that. And we also went there far too often. <laughs> you wrote a great article a few weeks back whether about whether or not college athletes should be paid. What's the best argument pro and the best argument con for paying college athletes? I mean, I think the biggest pro towards it right now is just if you look at the financial model of college athletics, people say, oh, these athletic departments are making $200 million a year or however much money, but they're, they don't have money to pay the athletes because they're breaking even. It's like, well, they have incentives to not show any sort of profit because they reinvest it all into the you know facilities, into coaching salaries. And if you made slightly different choices in that regard, you might be able to have some money left over for the athletes who are you know, the ones on the field that are producing the content that's making these schools, you know, tens of millions of dollars in the first place. So I think that's part of it. When you see, you know, the college coach that's making 10 million a year, and you can get a maximum of 6,000 for academic benefits, plus a little bit for cost of living and a scholarship. Like it's not that they're not getting anything, but it's just that there might be, they might deserve to get a little more, you know, compensation for the work that they're putting in that's, you know, generating so much revenue for the school. That's one. One of the bigger issues or one of the con arguments that you hear is that A, there's not any sort of players association. So negotiating working conditions and representation would be quite difficult. And, you know, there's no then standard for hiring an athlete, in this case, recruiting them or firing an athlete, which some argue is already happening when players get run off and replaced. And there's, you know, a toxic work environment. But 
there's a worry that that will not sit well with the athletes and or the coaches who have to be the ones doing it. And if you professionalize it, it kind of takes away some of, I don't want to say the silliness, but there's just some craziness and chaos that happens in college sports that's just kind of delightful because you know these people aren't going to be pros and they're not going to be doing the rest this the rest of their lives. And I think some people are really rubbed the wrong way by there being an income with that. And athletic directors and a lot of people that are opposed to pay-for-play will also say that, okay, maybe there's a way to ramp this up eventually. But if you immediately start paying all the athletes and flip that switch, it's so much money you're on the hook for right away that the athletic departments aren't going to be able to handle that. And in order to, you know, make the hard decision to pay the athletes, you might have to make a hard decision to cut a sport, in which case it would likely be Olympic sports, which, you know, in Mm. the U.S. is the feeder to the U.S. teams that compete at world championships and the Olympics. And, you know, again, opponents say that that's a choice. You can find the money if you want. Maybe, like, don't have a football staff of 140. But, you know, it really, it really, it's hard to tell who is the most believable in some of those situations, because if athletic directors are the ones threatening to cut the sports, they are the ones with the power to do so. And, you know, the activists that are saying, well, that's a choice, they're saying that, but they're not in a position to save the sport, you know? If we did go that direction, would it be possible, given the current Title IX rules, to pay a football player one thing and pay a woman's volleyball player something else? So that is probably a question that is better suited for a lawyer than myself, but I will try to take a stab at that. Um, because I think it depends on how you set it up, because if you just have, like, if you have something where football is breaking off from the NCAA and even, which, you know, is another whole rabbit hole to go down, but if it becomes something that is, you know, affiliated with the university, but not necessarily directly tied to it, it should be no problem to just pay football players. Because again, like then if you get yourself out of a world where you're subject to respond to Title IX, then you could potentially do that. However, I think if you stay within the current university Mm -hmm. model, there is some worry that if you're going to be paying 100 male athletes, you've got to be paying 100 female athletes too. And it doesn't have to necessarily be the same amount. But I think and that's where I think the lawyers would be better suited for this, because there's a lot of nitty gritty, but I've asked several and it sounds like there's a way to do it where you just have it say everyone is available to do this, but you don't have to base it on worth because obviously, you know, your star quarterback on a team is probably in an NFL as well. It's going to be making more than, you know, the backup punter, but they all have equal opportunity to make sure. money. <laughs> and I think that's kind of how, how you'd have to have it right. in college if everyone was to get paid overnight. Everybody always picks on the punter lane. That's not fair. Hey, I've, I have a great respect for punters. I think you saw in the games on Sunday, you know, week one of the NFL, that there's plenty of reason why there's a lot of, you know, weight put on their shoulders and that we should appreciate them when they do their job right. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to put the, uh, the pressure of oh prediction on you five years from now. What is, what is the, what is the compensation structure for college athletes look like? Oh man. I mean, if we're going to logically think this through, there are three different avenues where we could get to athletes being paid. One is through Congress and we all know how uh, fast Congress moves. So I think that's probably unlikely um, given that, you know, <laughs> college college sports administrators have been pushing for any sort of name, image and likeness thing there for years and gotten nothing. Yes. No? 
Although it has it has been pretty impressive to watch state legislators move very quickly around name and image likeness because they know that anything they do that slows down their team from winning championships will have people up in arms like no other political issue in the state of Texas, Oklahoma, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, yes. etc. The overlapping circles of big political donors and big university donors, it's big. So if you are that person that prevents, you know, Auburn football from competing, you are in trouble and not getting reelected. <laughs> so yeah, that's definitely big time, something. Big time. Yes. The other option is through the NLRB. And currently the woman, Jennifer Bruzo, who is the general counsel for that organization, last fall she wrote a letter saying, Hey, you know, I really think you guys should be employees. Like I invite you to bring a complaint. And no one did for a long time, and none of the athletes did. And then you've had activist groups bring them on behalf of the athletes. And those are sort of proceeding, and the NLRB will decide whether it'll hear the case. And then that proceeds, but it's also a lengthy-ish process. And the place where that gets unclear is if you get a turnover in administration. And if it goes from you know a Democrat in the White House to a Republican in the White House, that might change labor priorities in the NLRB, because that is an appointed position. And that might make things a little bit murky. However, if the NLRB does decide to move fast and you get a complaint that successfully says they're athlete, they are, you know, athletes are employees, it strangely only affects athletes at private schools because they are subject to, you know, I think it's the Fair Labor Standards Act um, that governs this aspect of what the NLRB oversees. Public employers it's different. And because so many public or so many universities are public, especially in the big conferences, it would create this uneven thing. And it would maybe take some time to even out to have the public university say, well, we can't have USC getting all the best players because they can pay them like we need to pay them too. So that I think is a little more dubious. And then option number three is through the court system, because there is currently a lawsuit I think Trey Johnson versus the NCAA in the Pennsylvania circuit that is proceeding. We know that all of these things take a long time, but that has been historically the avenue that has kind of chipped away at NCAA rules the most and sparked change because we got that with Alston. We got that with Ed O'Bannon. And and honestly, the thing that opened up the door to all this money flowing into college in the first place was Board of Regents, um, which was in the 80s that allowed for TV money to start coming into the picture. But this is to say, five years, we could be on the cusp of a Supreme Court ruling. We could be on the cusp of the NLRB doing something. We could be on the cusp of Congress doing something. And I think we'll still, I don't think we're going to get to it that fast. Like, I think it'll be a lot closer to happening than it is now. And we might have some states saying you can do it. But I think a big piece of it that's what makes it so hard to answer is both the avenues of getting there but also no one knows what the NCAA is going to look like in five years. You know, they're currently looking for a new president. They're currently restructuring their whole constitution and trying to transform the structure. And with each iteration that the NCAA has changed, the, you know, five power conferences have grown more powerful. But at the same time, it's increasingly becoming just two conferences with the SEC and the Big Ten. And like, will there even be a power five in five years? I don't know. So it's possible that with that structure, kind of like pulling the center of gravity away from the NCAA, they might be able to act independently and say, you know what, we're just going to pay players. So I think that's probably the fastest way that it could happen is if you get radical movement from those two conferences within a reimagined structure of the NCAA. But, you know, maybe you get an NCAA president going forward that's 
really dynamic and proactive and they do it too. I know this is really not a definitive prediction at all, but I think there's so many different avenues that this could happen at that will be closer to it, but probably not there yet. Well, it's the Wild West, and I, <laughs> I, I will not hold you to your prediction, but I love the thought process that goes into it. Uh, I've really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit through your writing, which is excellent. Where can our where can our listeners find out more about you? Um, yeah, so I they can follow me on Twitter. Um, I'm at Lane Higgins 17, but otherwise they can read me at the Wall Street Journal. Um, they once upon a time there was a Q and A I did, and there's a little bit about who I am off the page there. They can dig that up through Google, but you know, mostly just the Wall Street Journal and Twitter. I try to keep a low profile. All right, Lane, thank you so much for your time and your insights. Lane Higgins from the Wall Street Journal. Take care. Hey, everybody, if you like what we're up to here at Crazy Money, do us and yourself a favor by following the show on your favorite podcast app and subscribing to our YouTube channel. Also, click the link in the show notes to subscribe to my new Substack, where you'll get bi-weekly thoughts on the role of money in our world and in our lives directly to your email inbox. Thanks for sticking around. We'll see you next week.